The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 320. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, 10 Myths of American History, and you get the best deals on forthcoming courses if you have enrolled. And I've got a new course out, The Founding Fathers. It's an awesome course, 27 lectures, 25 of which cover individuals in the founding generation. It is really cool. You're going to want it. It's where I cut my teeth. And I got my start in doing all this kind of stuff. My Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers came out in 2009. June 30th, 2009, so we're just about 11 years in on that book. It's hard to believe it's been over a decade. But that's what the course is based on with some new stuff. So if you've got that book, I've got new lectures in there that you haven't seen before. And um, you know, people that I haven't talked about before, really anywhere, uh, other than a little bit here in other courses. So... Not only do you have that class, you've got all the other courses. They're awesome classes. I'm, I'm running a sale right now if you get this before July 9th, so you want to be on my email list so you can get the information on the sales. You need to be on my email list. Okay, so make sure you give me that email address at brianmcclanahan.com. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, the podcast going. Get your book plate, get your Brian McClanahan Show gear at brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that shop tab. You get your logo that I've got with my name on it, or you can just get that Think Locally, Act Locally sticker without my name on it, whatever you want to do. Either way, you're supporting the show. Go to LearnTrueHistory.com, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. It is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, also a great way to support the show. I teach there as well. So you got all kinds of ways to help me out and keep this podcast going. And right now, I'm doing it five days a week. So uh, they're a little shorter but you're getting it five days a week, and I think I can cover more stuff, number one, and I can get into some of these questions that I couldn't do in 30 or 45 minutes because there just wasn't enough material out there. And number two, you get me five days a week. So this is going to be awesome. I mean, I think that this new format, some people want the longer podcast. Well, if you want longer stuff, get my classes because that's a way to support the show financially and you also get me in longer form. In fact, the class that I'm working on right now is going to be awesome, and the lectures generally are going to be longer, so it's going to be really cool. That class is going to be out not too long from now either, so you want to get that McClanahan Academy. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day, and it's this recent Supreme Court ruling came out July 6th, which was yesterday. Also, a very tragic day yesterday. Lost Charlie Daniels, which is just uh, awful. Uh, but this came out July 6th, Supreme Court ruling on the faithless electors. The faithless electors. So I want to talk about the Electoral College. I've done it before, but I want to get into this particular case. 
uh, and talk about the reasoning behind it and where I think it is a, an accurate reading of the, the Constitution. The court actually did its job. Now, I'm going to get into the opinion and then um, the concurrent opinion from Clarence Thomas, which was also joined by Samuel Alito. So Alito joined both, I think. He, he, he joined Thomas and he joined the majority opinion, which was written by Justice Sotomayor. So to give you a background of what happened here, in the 2016 election, we had some electors in the state of Colorado who were pledged to support Hillary Clinton that did not. They voted for someone else, someone other than Hillary Clinton. This created what some people were surmising was going to be a constitutional crisis. Here we are coming in the 2020 election in November. And um, what happens if, say, Georgia is razor-thin majority for Trump or Biden, and they decide to throw their electoral votes the other way, or they decide to vote for a libertarian, or they decide to vote for whoever. Now, this has happened quite a bit um, at times where we have electors voting for whoever the heck they want to vote for. And generally, before the 20th century and before the party system really ramped up, electors could throw their votes in other directions. And we've seen it happen with the libertarian candidate before. Um, we know that a couple of states... Uh, Nebraska is the most, when well, it comes to mind first, allows the votes to be cast in different ways for the electors. But generally, it comes down to the popular vote of the state and how that state votes in the presidential election or how those electors are supposed to vote. So what happened in Colorado is these electors were fined by the state of Colorado. And uh, these electors then appealed to the Supreme Court because they said that that fine was unconstitutional, that there's nothing in the Constitution that says they have to vote for the, who the state tells them to vote for. I mean, essentially, that's what they're arguing. We don't have to vote for who the state tells us to vote for. We can vote for whoever we want because we are elected as an elector. So this is a very interesting question. Does it have to work that way? Does, does, does the state have the authority to force electors to vote in a particular way. For example, if the, if the Republican wins the state, does the state have the authority to say all electors have to vote for the Republican candidate? Or if the Democrat wins the state, all the electors have to vote for the Democrat? Or, like in Nebraska, where they split the electoral college vote, do you have to vote how your district votes? And you, the way that works is, you know, if you have three uh, uh, congressional districts, Whoever wins your district, that vote goes to that electoral college vote goes to that candidate, and then you have the overall winner that gets to two at large, which are um, whoever wins the state overall. So you split your electoral college votes out. This also leads into the national popular vote initiative, which I think we're setting up for that now. Um, which the idea is that the state will pledge its electoral college votes to whoever wins the popular vote in the United States. So now the states are saying we can do that. Now, I've talked about these things before. 
But how does this work? People have, people have emailed me. Is this the proper ruling? Well, long story short, yes, it is the proper ruling. And I'm going to get into why it's the proper ruling. It doesn't mean it's going to be a good thing, but it is the proper ruling. So the funniest thing about all this was that the majority opinion written by, again, Justice Sotomayor. Oh, I'm sorry, not Sotomayor. Sotomayor dissented. Excuse me, I said it wrong. It's actually a, um, Elena Kagan wrote the majority. Sotomayor, I guess, did not. Uh, let me go back to this. She didn't. Uh, t- took no part. Excuse me. That's where I was reading this. So Elena Kagan wrote the majority, and Sotomayor did not take part in the decision. Okay. Sorry about that. I was off on who was participating in this. So I want to go to the Supreme Court uh, blog. This was written by uh, Amy Howe. And I found this part to be amusing. In an 18-page opinion that was joined by seven of her, other, of her colleagues, Justice Elena Kagan began with a brief discussion of the Electoral College. When Americans cast their votes for a presidential candidate, Kagan reminded us, They're not actually voting for president. Instead, they are choosing members of the Electoral College who are appointed by each state based on the outcome of the vote there and then then choose the president when the Electoral College meets in December. Kagan then moved on to recount the history of presidential voting with a discussion that included references to the TV show Veep and the Broadway hit Hamilton. I mean, come on now. Is this not stupid? Have we gotten to a point where we're discussing pop culture? From the, from the bench of the Supreme Court, pop culture, Veep, and Hamilton? Ooh, look how hip I am. I've watched Hamilton. I watched the show Veep. I mean, my gosh, how ridiculous is this? But she says, in the 20th century, many states enacted statutes meant to ensure that electors voted for the proper candidate by requiring them to pledge to support the party's winning nominee. As of now, 32 states in the District of Columbia have such statutes on their books, and about Sixty years ago, some states, currently 15 in total, enacted laws to give their pledge laws some teeth by removing faithless electors from their positions, substituting an alternative whose vote the state reports instead. Like Washington, some of those states also find electors who break their pledge. The Constitution, Kagan points out, is bare bones about electors. It provides only that states will appoint electors who meet and cast ballots to the president, which are then sent to Washington. Those Sparse instructions, she continued, took no position on how independent from or how faithful to party and popular preferences the electors' vote should be. Nothing in the Constitution expressly prohibits states from taking away presidential electors' voting discretion as Washington does. With little in the Constitution itself to answer the question, Kagan then turned to history, as the Supreme Court has long done with interpreting a provision of the Constitution. And for Kagan, historical practice seemed to fill the blanks Quite nicely. Electors, she explained, have only rarely exercised discretion in casting the ballot for president. Instead, she explained, from almost the very beginning of our country's history, states did not intend to choose electors who would be free agents and make their own decisions about the best candidate. Rather, she stressed, states wanted the electors to cast ballots for the party's candidate, reflecting the will of the people. Kagan dismissed the history supporting the electors as one of anomalies, I'm sorry, anomalies only. There have been Only 180 faithless votes out of over 23,000 cash, she observed, and more than a third of those can be attributed to one election in which the Democrat Party's nominee died shortly after Election Day in 1872. Putting those aside, she concluded faithless votes represent just one half of 1% of the total. 
Okay, so I, was, I said Alito was Gorsuch that uh, joined Thomas. Boy, it's early, and I've made a couple mistakes. I'm sorry for those mistakes. Um, so here we have an issue. Yes, I mean, this is all correct, the history. And we did have faithless electors. But it has been in the 20th century that this has been more in line with party voting, which is a disaster in many cases. I mean, the parties have ruined the American political system. Um, and some states have teeth in their laws. So going back and looking at history and saying the Constitution is mute on the issue means that there's nothing we can really do about this and the states can do whatever they want. I actually agree with Clarence Thomas's position a little more. When he said that the states, because of the Tenth Amendment, can um, impose their will at this particular point. Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, filed a separate opinion in which he agreed with the rest of his colleagues that the faithless elected law are constitutional, even if he did not agree with the majority's reasoning. Because Thomas believes that the Constitution does not say anything about whether the states have the power to require electors to vote for their candidates, they pledge support. He would uphold the laws on the ground that any powers that the Constitution does not specifically either give to the federal government or take away from the states belong to the states. That's actually the correct position here. His position of the Tenth Amendment is the correct position, not the reasoning, well, we've got history on the side of these things, and we're going to watch Hamilton and Veep, and we're going to rule uh, about this based on that. Now, the states are the building blocks of the federal system, and so the states have complete control of that particular process. Whether the proponents of the National Popular Vote Initiative like it or not, the states control, through the Electoral College, who wins the president. You have to win more states than more votes. Um, and Sotomayor recruits herself because she knew one of the electors, Polly Baca. Um, so this is a very interesting decision because it is a federalism decision. Here the court has sided with federalism. I and mean, they could have come out and come down heavy-handed and said, no, I mean, the, the Constitution is, uh, I mean, it's mute on this, so the federal government can. It doesn't say the states cannot or can regulate these things, so the states can't do it. They could have come in with that type of ruling, which would have been a complete destruction of federalism. But no, they actually sided with federalism here. Now, I think it works to the advantage of the left that they do this because this was working against Hillary Clinton. And if you get to the National Popular Vote Initiative, I think that's what's underlying all this for the leftist judges. If you get to the National Popular Vote Initiative and the state of Washington says, you know what, whoever wins the popular vote, that's who, we're gonna, that's who the electoral votes have to go to. It doesn't matter if the... the Republican wins the state of Washington, but the Democrat wins the overall popular vote. Where you electors have to vote for the Democrat. You see, they're setting themselves up for that because they know that's on the horizon. I think that that's very clear. They know that's on the horizon. The National Popular Vote Initiative is going to destroy, is going to destroy all of this the Electoral College essentially in the United States. It's going to make the Electoral College irrelevant Excuse me, when we get to the National Popular Vote Initiative, which I think is, again, it's on the horizon. 
We've been talking about uh, you know, abolishing the Electoral College now since Donald Trump won the 2016 election. Of course, there was a call for it in 2000. I don't know how that's going to work. It would take a constitutional amendment to abolish it entirely. But this end around with the National Popular Vote Initiative, where the states simply pledge, all right, whoever wins, they can do this. Whoever wins the popular vote in the United States gets our Electoral College votes. The funny thing is that they're waiting in a pack. This is where I think there's going to be a legal challenge to it. If, say, the state of California just did this, said, okay, look, it doesn't matter who wins California, we're pledging our electoral college votes to whoever wins the national, the, the popular vote. There could be no questioning it. The problem is this is forming an interstate compact. And so when you look at the Constitution, it very clearly says the states cannot form these type of compacts. So I'm not so certain, it's a, it's a confederation, essentially, you know, in that way. I'm not so certain that that's going to pass legally if they try this based on that. Well, this state needs to do it before I do it. Now, if they just did it, then you couldn't, I don't think you could say anything about it. But there are, there are clauses in these laws that would make it to where these particular states, these, these national popular vote laws don't go into effect until enough states with 270 electoral college votes agree to it. Now, looking at current demographics, you don't need many states to, to do that. I mean, you've got the big states, I believe, already on board with this. And so that's an issue. You've already got several states that have decided they're going to go uh, in this direction. So what's going to happen with that ultimately is the is several states are going to be left out and it really won't matter anymore. Um, you're only going to have to campaign in those states where you get the electoral college votes of 270. You've basically destroyed federalism. Now, why did the founding generation put the Electoral College in? Well, it's pretty clear. I go through this in my founding fathers class. I go through it in my American Constitutions course. They put it in there because they did not trust direct democracy. They didn't think that the people should be electing the president. In fact, George Mason called that, uh, I mean, an elected king, one of the most heinous things you could ever do. And with the amount of powers the president has today, the amount of power the president of the United States possesses, I think George Mason is spinning in his grave. Because we, if we go to a national popular vote, if we do this, then what we've done in the United States is create the very monster the founding generation warned about when the idea of a singular executive was first proposed in the Philadelphia Convention in 1787 through Madison's Virginia plan. We've gotten to that point. So, uh, the Electoral College is a great check on mass democracy. The problem is, I mean, if the, the problem is the political parties have now gotten involved. I prefer a system where we have it, where you do have at-large districts, where you have whoever wins the state overall gets two electoral college votes. And then you could have a situation where maybe the libertarian candidate wins one congressional district and the Democrat wins one and the Republican wins one if you have five electoral college votes. But the Democrat wins the overall state or the Republican wins the overall state, but you get some electoral college votes. So, for example, in California, you wouldn't just have winner takes all in California. You would have some Republicans picking up some electoral college votes and then, of course, the Democrats taking most of the state. But the, you would actually have a more uh, widely dispersed and more, more influential 
chance at getting your vote heard in these congressional districts. I mean, in the South, you know, you have, uh, for example, in Alabama, you would have at least one electoral college vote going to a Democrat every single time. This is how that type of system should be sold, but the parties want to block it, the majority parties. If it's the Democrats in California or the Republicans in Alabama, for example, they want to block this because that cuts their power and their hope of controlling all those electoral college votes in that state. So at the end of the day, the real culprit, the real danger in all of this, the real danger in all of this is the electoral college. I'm sorry, it's not the electoral college. It's the political parties. It's not the electoral college that's the problem. It's the political parties. It's the fact that we've created a two-party monster in the United States that tries to elbow out and crowd out any type of third-party opposition. Which goes back to my premise of think locally, act locally, where you can have third parties work and you can take over school boards and city councils and county councils and mayor races. You can win in those elections because there are so few people. And then you can control what kind of government and what kind of laws you want in your local community, what type of curriculum you want in your schools. The Electoral College should almost be irrelevant. If we really followed the original Constitution, the president would have so few powers that all of this would just be irrelevant. Who cares who the president of the United States is? What's more important is the governor of the state and the mayor of your town. And again, going back to the founding generation, which I get into in my new course, The Founding Fathers, most of the important people in the founding generation believe that. They ran for governor in their state. They, they were influential in their local communities. The big six were not, and I talked about the big six with Trump's ridiculous monument garden yesterday. They're national figures, but the important people, the really important people, I mean, Washington's important, don't get me wrong, but the people that really were movers and shakers were those that were on the ground in their states. Patrick Henry, John Hancock, George Clinton, Roger Sherman, John Rutledge, John Dickinson. These were important people because they were in those state and local governments and really making things happen. All right. So that's my take on this Supreme Court decision of faithless electors. It's the right decision. I think Justice Thomas had the right reasoning for it. Sorry for the misstating Sotomayor and Kagan. Uh, Kagan wrote the majority opinion. Sotomayor recused herself. And it was Gorsuch who joined Thomas, not Alito. Regardless, they got it right for the wrong reason in the majority opinion. Uh, the dissenting opinion with Clarence Thomas got it right entirely. But again, the left is doing this because they're anticipating the national popular vote and they think they're going to win elections all the time from here on out. Okay, so that's my take on that particular case. That's it for this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. <laughs>